Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, my name is Andres. In this episode, Carceral Ableism and Disability Justice, we explore the ways in which the framework of carceral ableism redraws our map of racial capitalism's archipelago of confinement and how the liberatory praxis of disability justice works to extend and deepen the abolitionist horizon. We speak first with Dr. Liat Ben Moshe, Assistant Professor of Disability Studies at the University of Toledo and co-editor of Disability Incarcerated, Imprisonment and Disability in the United States and Canada. Ben Moshe explains how ableism, the violent material and discursive ordering of bodily and psychic difference through which normative and deviant body minds are produced, has been foundational to the development of the carceral state. We then turn to Leroy Moore, disability justice artist, activist, and co-founder of Crip-Hop and Sins Invalid. Moore explains how the disability justice movement emerged as both extension and critique of the disability rights movement, emphasizing the leadership of queer, gender non-conforming people of color with disabilities, and asserting that resisting ableism requires far more than civil rights-oriented legislative reform or police sensitivity trainings. That disability justice means a complete revolutionizing of our conceptions of embodiment and of our practices of interdependence. But first, here's Kay Sayed with some news you may have missed. On December 15th, the state of Delaware settled a lawsuit filed by six prisoners and the family of a corrections officer who was killed during the 18-hour uprising at the James T. Vaughn Correctional Center last February. In the largest payout to settle a civil lawsuit in state history, the state of Delaware agreed to pay $7.5 million. The plaintiffs charged that the state put money over safety for decades, creating the conditions for an uprising to occur. The state still admits no wrongdoing. On December 10th, 35-year-old William Marshall was killed in a holding cell by the Westland Police Department in Westland, Michigan. According to the eyewitness account of his cellmate, Marshall, who was picked up only a few hours before his death, was physically abused by officers and denied medical attention while suffering from a heart attack. Officers kicked Marshall repeatedly and refused to allow paramedics in to take him to a nearby hospital. On January 6th, a Michigan university contracted with the state's Department of Corrections to provide medical directors charged with producing medical policy in the state's corrections system. Wayne State University, located in Detroit, will eventually also be able to use some of the state prisons for clinical rotations for medical, pharmacy, nursing, and social work students. This deals part of a larger nationwide trend of higher education institutions exploiting and profiting off of the confinement of inmates. I'm Maria here with Alejo Stark, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Last year, Maria made a trip to Ohio to speak with Dr. Liat Ben-Moshe, assistant professor of disability studies at the University of Toledo, and an activist who writes extensively about prison abolition and carceral ableism. She's a co-editor of Disability Incarcerated, Imprisonment and Disability in the United States and Canada. Dr. Ben-Moshe's work was central to the first episode of Rust Belt Abolition Radio and she opened the second year of the show by reintroducing disability justice in relation to abolition. What I think is really important is that when we think about abolition as only tearing down, what it leads us is to what James Kilgore calls carceral humanism, and I would call carceral ableism, really. It's this idea that we can make a more humane kind of carceral state, we can rehabilitate prisoners, we can create psychiatric wards within prisons because we know that the rate of prisons with disabilities is incredibly high. 
we can, you know, do things that kind of alleviate the suffering of people right now in terms of the current prison conditions. And one of the things that's problematic with that approach alone is exactly this difference between tearing down and building anew. So rehabilitation is also imbued in this kind of carceral logics because we know from people who are kind of med survivors, for example, or psychiatric survivors, people identify as mad, crazy, consumers, ex-patients, anti-psychiatry. These are all kind of different definitions that people might kind of umbrella under. They tell us that for a lot of them, forced medication, for example, hospitalization, these are also imbued within the same kind of carceral logics that try to rehabilitate the productive citizen, which is, of course, you know, based on white, settler, male, able-bodied, straight, you know, all these kind of norm-inducing ideas of what productive means. And so to create this kind of model citizens through rehabilitation, and this is something that we also know from scholars who've done work on the connection between prison and settler colonialism, especially in the U.S., is that the work of rehabilitation is the work of the settler state, right? I mean, the point is to rehabilitate a savage, to create this kind of modern, educated citizen, which is never the indigenous, never the person of color, never the disabled person, and so on. And of course, not the intersections of all these. And so if we understand rehabilitation as that, it's a form of violence. And so this is not an alternative to incarceration. This is a form of a carceral logic. And so if we connect that to Du Bois, again, we, we should really be cautious about the difference between creating a new and reproducing the old. The point is not to assimilate people into the society as it is now. The point is to completely change what we have now, including abolishing systems like racism and capitalism, which is something that rights movements not necessarily are prepared to do, especially with capitalism and settler colonialism, maybe racism too. And so if a rights movement is more about kind of fighting for the rights to employment for people with disabilities, I would say disability justice would be kind of more concerned about people's value, regardless of whether or not they're employed. So this idea of going beyond the productive citizen, that's more out of the purview of disability rights movement. And I would say that a critical disability perspective from disability studies is kind of the, the scholarship around all of these issues. So it doesn't mean that it can't be activist. But, you know, what disability studies, I think, does really, really well is to talk about how disability is constructed by the social. And the social could also be economical. The social could also be geographical. The social could also be environmental and all of those connections. But it's to convey that disability is not in people. It's not in people. It's not in minds and it's not in bodies. It's in the interface of those things with environments and societies and cultures and histories. The idea that disability is not inferior, so difference by itself does not need to be in a hierarchy. So if we just had disability kind of by itself in which people were just different, I don't think we would be having this kind of conversation even, right? The fact is that disability is in a hierarchy by which able-bodiedness or able-mindedness is definitely superior to disability. And that is the problem. And that is the problem that we seek to abolish. So what disability studies does really well is to connect to movements who see disability as a form of identity and pride, take pride in their identity. And it doesn't mean that they every day wake up and say, oh, I'm disabled and beautiful and proud and everything is sunny and roses and I get all the services I need and I live a happy life. No, but it, it's really, I think, radical to think about disability 
as beautiful and to think about disability as part of biodiversity and to think about disability as something that we can be proud of, even if we not always are. You know, just we're, like we're not always proud of being queer. We're not always proud of being women and sometimes it's shitty. What are a couple examples of the intersections between race and disability as well as imprisonment? Absolutely. That's a great question. And we're close to Flint, you know, it's just one example of what's going on right now in terms of population of people of color, poor people that are going to have very high rates of disability, unfortunately, because of lead-based poisoning. This is just one example out of so, so many that are connecting the intersection of race and disability. And there's a lot of, of course, historical connections of that kind in an article that I did with Jean Stewart, we talk a lot about that intersection, especially in regards to environmental induced disabilities and prisons. So we talk about a few examples of particular prisons that were built on sites that were known to be environmentally toxic and the kind of production of disability that happens because of, you know, the legacy of the toxicity of those sites. And this is going to affect people's lives for a very long time, uh, sometimes even generationally. How does the devaluation of disabled people, because of their supposedly non-productive embodiment, connect to racial capitalism's rendering of particular populations as surplus or redundant from the vantage point of capital? The reason why I think it's really important to understand it from those angles is because, you know, as a disability studies scholar and as an activist, I think we understand disability a little bit differently maybe than the way a lot of people understand disability. And I think the way a lot of people understand disability is an impairment, as something that makes you not being able to do something. And the way that we understand disability within disability justice, disability studies, is that disability is really in the interaction between people and their environment. So for a lot of us, we wouldn't be disabled if it weren't for environmental barriers that are put in place. And these barriers could be capitalism, but it could also be people's attitudes. And it can also be not having ramps or not having interpreters or not having everybody speak sign language or communicating only orally or all these kind of things that we decided as a society that we are going to do. So this is not something in people's bodies, but it's the connection between people's bodies and the societies in which they live and the environments in which we live. So, for example, you know, people who talk to themselves in certain cultures, this is considered a sign of being closer to some kind of deity or God. Not to romanticize any of this, but of course, if somebody would do that, like in this society, we incarcerate them. So our responses to the exact same behavior that people have are very different culturally and also very different across time and geographical areas and so on. And so if we understand both race and disability in this kind of way as being socially constructed, I think it's really important to talk about that intersection as well. So I'm really interested in talking about, of course, the intersection of impairment and race, but also the intersection of disability and race as a cultural marker. And in both of those ways, they're both devalued. This really leads us to think about the surplus populations that you mentioned. So if we take that to understand disability and race as being socially constructed, well, often within capitalist societies, which of course is what we live in, not just capitalism, but racial capitalism and settler racial capitalism in the U.S. case, then we can think about how do we reproduce disability and race, especially their intersection, as a kind of burden on society. 
And when we think about who are like the burdens on society, right, the quote unquote disposable bodies, and I'm saying burden, of course, with quotations, I don't really mean that. But I mean, from the point of view of settler racial capitalism, well, these are the unproductive, right, that we talked about earlier, the need of the state to make people productive. So the unproductive would be people of color, particularly men of particular age. And we know that they are worth much more to the gross domestic product when they are in prison, occupying prison beds. And it doesn't matter if the prison, by the way, is for profit or not. The same logic happens in both. So it's not just about private prisons. But they're worth more to the gross domestic product if they're in prison than they are when they're not. And the same is true for people with disabilities. And of course, people who are disabled of color where they're worth more in nursing homes and in institutions and in prisons than they are in their own beds. This is what Martha Russell called handicapitalism. It's a great kind of, great in quotes, alchemy that capitalism does where it makes the unproductive into super productive. And we created this whole industry of both, of course, the prison industrial complex, but also the institutional industrial complex and also the health industry. You know, what are social workers, for example, case managers, occupational therapists, all these professions that are built on the backs of people with disabilities, a lot of whom are, of course, people of color. Uh, and I'm not saying these are not professions to be had. I'm not saying people don't deserve, if they need to, you know, to go to an occupational therapist or something like that. But what I'm saying is, is that it's really interesting that those are the people we see as burden, and yet they bring so much profit into the economy at large. And if they didn't exist, we didn't have all these other professions. So that's kind of a really interesting dynamic that we often don't talk about. Thank you so much for your work, for joining us, and for being a great friend of the show. That was Sugar Free Queen by Crip Nation. 
at the 2017 International Conference on Penal Abolition, ICOPA, Amaria and I caught up with musician, journalist, and Simpson Valley co-founder, Leroy Moore. Simpson Valley is a performance project that incubates and celebrates artists with disabilities, centralizing artists of color and queer and gender-bearing artists. Also a co-founder of Crip-Hop Nation, a collective of hip-hop artists and other musicians with disabilities, Leroy tackles police violence against disabled people of color in his music as well as his organizing. I'm the Black Cripple, a.k.a. Leroy Moore. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm a poet, journalist, activist with Poor Magazine. I also do what's called Crip Hop Nation with a K. Also write um, for the San Francisco Bayview newspaper. I've been on the lecture circuit in college since 98. Can you speak about how you think about the relationships between your cultural work, disability justice, and abolition? Disability justice really came from on a group of people of color in the area, led by few people that are queer, people that are trans, people that are, you know, left out of the disability rights movement. Matter of fact, in the 90s with Poor Magazine and the San Francisco Bayview newspaper, we were on a campaign that lasted three, four years of proving that Michael Maney was there, wrote a judge and mocked his disability in court. The judge called him the N-word and all that stuff. He was in jail for like four or five years in Four Magazine and myself and San Francisco Review, you know, wrote articles. You're in touch with the family. I went down there twice to see him. We finally got in contact with Hurricane Carter. He switched his whole case around. Uh, the DA was racist. The DA was mocking his disability, just like the judge. So that's only one case. Can you tell us about the cultural work of Sins Invalid, the performance project which has been at the forefront of articulating, embodying, and disseminating the politic of disability justice? Patty and I started like years ago. We just had questions about not seeing people of color with disabilities in the artistic world in the Bay Area. You know, we wanted to be for people of color, people that are queer, people that are transgender, and it really had an artistic frame on it with a, a political lens. So, Lero, can you tell us more explicitly what abolition means to you? I think it goes way beyond reform, you know, it goes way beyond policy. It's just take down the whole system. People have the answers, not politicians. Um, there's other ways to get justice, other ways that our Native Americans taught us, you know, before we had, you know, institutional policies, you know, we need to go back to those types of ways, you know. Can you talk about the San Francisco Bayview and the close lines of contact that it keeps with people who are incarcerated? The Bayview in San Francisco is, I think, one of the oldest black home newspaper in the Bay Area. And it's political, it's straightforward. There's no mainstream Fox News kind of bullshit. We, we tell it like it is. And, you know, because of that, of course, people in authority roles 
don't want the baby to be in their institution. You know, we, we have articles like from Romania to, you know, to say open people living on the streets. So it's not surprising that it's banned. Can you talk about some of the intersections between gentrification and police violence, specifically in terms of violence against people of color with disabilities? You know, people with disabilities in the Bay Area, New York, come on, you can't work 5000 a month. You know, for people really on SSI, that's unheard of. So a lot of people with disabilities are you know, becoming homeless once again. Or getting into the prison system because lazy women to help disabilities. In the, the Bay Area, they, in, in Oakland, they wanted to build a mental health care. And, and most of the people that, that's locked up are people that are brown and have disabilities. I've, I've been involved with police brutality since ABA. It's mind-blowing because 70% of cases are around police brutality are people with disabilities. The cycle of what happens when police brutality happens to people with disability. It's a cycle that's been going on since the 80s. The cycle is, you know, a person with disability gets abused by police. The first thing that comes out is the police side of the story that, that taints everything. And a lot of times the disability is like erased. You don't even know. But after the series and after the court case, the only one solution that's been around since 89 is more police training. Can you imagine if our community got, got the training, but you don't have the power police, you know? We really need to change the focus of what the police needs to what the community needs. Well, thank you so much for, for taking all this time and speaking with us today. Yeah, thank you. The foundational imbrications of ableism and the carceral state are evident not only in the marked overrepresentation of disabled people within formal sites of incarceration and among the survivors of police violence, but moreover in the forms of surveillance, discipline, and confinement that structure a host of institutions typically understood as outside the purview of the carceral state, such as nursing homes, psychiatric institutions, and rehabilitation centers among them. Moore turns our attention to the generative relationship between disability justice and abolition. If abolition means creating a world in which, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts it, there is no boundary or border used to keep somebody in or somebody out, then abolition must be the practice of dismantling the violent walls erected by ableism and imagining a world in which a great diversity of body minds can flourish. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to past episodes on our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show was co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew. Andres, Di Maria, David Langstaff, Catalina Rios, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.